Welcome, everyone, to the Silicon Slopes Conversations. Um, today, we are joined by Adam Sidwell, who is the founder and head of studio at Future House Studios. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate you, it. You bet. Um, this will be fun because uh, this is a world I'm not overly familiar with. Um, but anytime I'm talking to you, you're very, very excited about it. And um, it's ultimately like fun, which is very cool. Um, let's start with um, the founding story of Future House Studios and mix in your background and career that led to it, if you could. Okay. Yeah, happy to do that. Um, maybe, maybe I should rewind a little bit to make that make more sense. So uh, I started uh, Future House Studios about three years ago. And for the uninitiated, and since we're just starting off here, we're a, we're a game development and animation and technology company, uh, which means that we delve into all sorts of uh, animation for television, film, um, games, even the metaverse, as we know uh, about you know how that's developed and turned out. Um, but uh, we've we've helped in all sorts of design aspects and engineering aspects of creating experiences. Um, that, that range all across the board. So I, I come from a, um, a background of making movies, you know, um, 20 years in the visual effects and animation industry, uh, working on movies like King Kong, uh, the Peter Jackson one, by the way, um, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, the Marvel movies like Thor, and franchises like Transformers, uh, and, and just building some of the coolest visuals uh, that come out in movies, and that has informed um, how I approach building this company and the kind of work that we do. Yeah. Um, big movies there. Um, that would be a whole separate show. Um, we, could, we could talk about that for hours. Yeah. Because with uh, King Kong, um, the cool thing about that is when I told my daughter he didn't really die, he really was just somebody's animation and it was a computer generated thing it made her happy because she was actually sad that king kong had died that means that king kong was really effective because he made her feel like he was real and so that means we did our job you know i have to confess that um it was one of my jobs when i was working on that film to build the biplanes they're called hell divers that actually shot down king kong so don't tell your daughter i was partially responsible for his death <laughs> i will not so there's a lot there, right, that you guys do. Um, how old is, is Future House Studios, and when were you comfortable, confident enough, the timing was right to branch out and hang your own shingle? So uh, the studio is about three years old. Uh, we just passed our third year anniversary in May. And uh, really what happened is, uh, you know, I'd been doing this in in film for so long, and you're working with this massive studio of 400 to 1,000 people, and uh, you know it's very well established, and there's not much entrepreneurship. And I was given the opportunity to, uh, you know, as as I delved into making virtual reality in real time in games, uh, there was an opportunity in my life where I had just uh, been part of a company that was um, struggling with funding, and I uh, told the owner, I said, you know what, I I'd like to, I think I'm, it's time for me to move on, and. Uh, I had an opportunity where someone came to me, it was an old producer friend, and he said, hey, we're working on these virtual concerts 
Um, and this was right in the middle of COVID. So this is, you know, 2020, May 2020. And, and he said, we're working on these virtual concerts with John Legend and The Weeknd and all sorts of these awesome stars. You've got a team, right? And I said, yes. Yes, I have a team. I do. And so uh, Future House was born. And um, I, I talked to, uh, you know, the owner of the previous company. I said, look. You guys are having funding trouble. I'm leaving. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this thing up. And if you would like, I can continue doing the things for you that you needed done that I was doing for you, but I'll do it with my team, and that will mean that you don't have to have all these people on your payroll. And he said, absolutely, that sounds great. And so we came out of the gate with two clients, and we're working off on some really awesome things. And, uh, and so we dove in, we started making these virtual concerts with a company called Wave um, that does some amazing uh, virtual concert experiences. Uh, later on, we went to uh, build uh, a Justin Bieber concert experience with Wave. They, they have all these great relationships with artists and this amazing technology. And so we were support on that. And, and Justin Bieber was a very cool experience to work on. I know how many of you are believers? All the hands went up, just so you know. Can't see that at home. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, it was, it was a fantastic experience working with this real-time technology, especially as this idea of the metaverse was getting really exciting um, before, you know, there was kind of a, a fall off of the cliff later. But, this, but during COVID, there was this idea of, like, well, we can't get out. We would love to be able to go to a Justin Bieber concert virtually because I can't go to the real thing. So that's what... Um, made those concerts so interesting for people and there were millions of people who attended a concert as opposed to you know it, when usually when you have a concert you have 70,000 people attend but there were millions who were able to see those things yeah and um, those were probably some heady fun times with uh, maybe some long hours I'm assuming absolutely uh, I our strength is always our team. Our team is really incredible, uh, incredible artists, incredible engineers, incredible producers, technical people who put in some really long hours, weekends um, and, uh, you know, 80-hour weeks for several weeks in a row to get those things delivered. Yeah. And sometimes that happens as part of a production experience. I assume so, right? Because um, there's deadlines and then there's people telling you about deadlines. Which is always fun. Um, the business model of, of entertainment and um, building these these movies and these games, um, you can kind of see it at the, the end of a movie, all of the people that, that worked on it, right? And somewhere there's a bean counter that the whole thing penciled out. And you hear about hopefully, the big ones. Hopefully it penciled out. Yeah. Because a lot of them don't. A lot of them, a lot of them don't. Um, the business model for Future House Studios who are your clientele? Who would you like your clientele to be? How does it work as you're like doing these standalone projects or joint ventures? And ultimately, like, how do you guys monetize and figure out like it, making sure it will pencil out? Uh, so basically, we're we're a service business, right? Like that's that's our origins. Is a client comes to us and says, "We need this massive, amazing thing built. Uh, we can't do it all ourselves, or we have no idea how to do it." can you build this for us? And then we give them a bid and then money changes hands and goods change hands and everybody's happy at the end of the day and they get something really cool. Um, so that's the origins of our business. And 
Um, to make that pencil out, you have to have a real exact uh, you know, budgeting procedure to watch that, hey, we're doing this really cool game idea, for example. Um, you have to define what all the specs are so that you don't have a massive scope creep um, in that and that you can come away not having paid, you know, me not having to mortgage my own house to pay for somebody else's game, which, you know, the pressure has been there before, right? Oh, just do this one more thing, one more thing, one more thing, and a year later, you're still doing one more thing. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, there's always that, that management and working well with the client, right? But what is really amazing is that we've had a lot of clients come to us and say, you know what, we really like working with you. We like what we've done. What can we do together? What can we do as a joint venture? What can we do where you're part of this, where you have some equity in what we're building, or you have you know, a stake in what we're building, and you're helping us determine the future of where our company goes? Um, because uh, you know, we are a technology company that's very well-versed in the, uh, the tech that's out there and where the industry is going in various places because we have dozens of conversations each week with so many um, clients or people who are raising money and who are trying to build X, Y, or Z that we really get to understand the landscape for entertainment and technology uh, that's out there. So, you know, some of our clients are, are game development companies. Some of our clients are, uh, are you know, television productions where we're doing... Uh, VFX or animation for a TV show, you know, some of those things might end up on uh, with some of the streamers or the networks, or you might see them on the silver screen. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting because a lot of what we do, if if only I could tell you all the things right now that we're working on, but I have to tell you next year uh, because there's a delay in we work on a project, it doesn't come out for a year, and then you can talk about it, and that's when it gets really fun. Um, so. You know, for example, when, one of the things that we'd been working on was this, this massive Transformers game for Dave & Buster's with uh, our, uh, our clients VR Studios and um, Dark Slope. And we built this thing for Dave & Buster's. I got to art direct it. We got our whole team building the animation, the characters, you know, even um, diving into some of the engineering. And it was a, actually a ride that goes into all the Dave & Buster's across the country where you put on a VR headset and you're in this chair that tilts and moves while the VR um, is synced to that movement. So it gives you a full simulation of um, falling off the edge of a building or being tossed into, a, into space by a transformer. Um, and that was a lot of fun, but we couldn't talk about it until nearly a year after we had completed our you know, six months, eight months, almost a year after, until after we'd completed our portion. Yeah. So you're kind of just sitting there knowing you've got something good and can't really talk about it. Can't really talk about it, yeah. Yeah. Yep. But it is nice knowing that you do have something fun to talk about at a certain point in the future. It is. It is. And, you know, we can look at some of the um, things that we've done in the past. There's always an interesting enough conversation uh, piece that we can uh, have a fun discussion about various things that we've built. Yeah. Um, I was down in Las Vegas a few weekends ago, and I was hanging out at... Uh, UNLV, and talking to some folks down there that uh, are in tune with gaming and entertainment, right? But um, that, we'll just call it fun and entertainment. And um, they were asking me a few questions on GDP for the entire world for like 
agriculture, and a few others where you're like, oh, that's big, big. Um, fun and entertainment is 15% of GDP. That includes like Lagoon and Disneyland and movies and condos and things like that. But that's where you guys are hanging out, right? So it's a massive market and it's right there in the word, like fun and entertainment. Like people don't want to look at spreadsheets all day. They don't want to dig ditches all day. Like their natural inclination is to have fun and enjoyment in life. How do you factor in like the psychology of people wanting to be entertained and have fun? get thrown into space by a transformer, which in real life would kill you. Because um, again, like ultimately what I said at the beginning, it's just fun. Like your end result is like smiles for people. How do you guys think of that as a team? Uh, well, everybody who works at Future House either has a passion for television, movies, animation, games, or these types of interactive experiences like this content creation. and. You know, I, I think it's really interesting as you look at the things that move the world, there's, um, there's law, there's elections, there's politics, there's science and technology, but so much of that is influenced by the stories that we tell. Um, the stories that we tell are a reflection of, I think, some of our innermost desires and our innermost anxieties and fears, and those tend to shape uh, culture in a way that has a domino effect on law, politics, technology, et cetera. Um, and, and whether that those changes would occur without the stories is, is hard to say because those stories are so linked to how people think and what they want. Uh, but I, we live in an incredible era, an incredible area uh, in an industry where we can help uh, shape stories for good. Um, and help tell stories that make us want to be better people, uh, make us want to uh, unite together under, um, under doing something good for the world. Yeah. And along those lines of stories, right, like we're telling your story right now a little bit, um, this is also a passion for you because being an entrepreneur is challenging, but writing a book is challenging. Uh, has anyone written a book? One, two. A couple people. Two out of like... Yeah. 50. Fellow authors, I agree. You've you. written this quite a few, right? Uh, I have about seven books right now. You know, some of them are short. The picture books are easy. It's like 50 words. Go write one of those, everyone, this afternoon. <laughs> Very easy. Um, but clearly, like, uh, storytelling is a big part of uh, you and obviously the company. What is the, the process of writing a, a book, even if it's an easy one? Because I think some of them might not have been. Uh, and the correlations with like being an entrepreneur and growing and scaling a business. Uh, so I, I'm glad you asked that question uh, because I, I think I think there's there's a structure to how we tell stories. Um, with you know, of course, you, you have your you have your introduction and your hooks and your setup and, and uh, world building that occurs uh, in in a good story, um, and then you get down to the nitty gritty of the dialogue and the characterization that go into communicating an idea and taking someone along through a progression because you cannot tell them the thing you tell them in chapter 17 that you would have told them in chapter two. So um, I, I focus on, I love writing middle grade adventure stories, which is, you know, the, the, the Harry Potter sweet spot, right? Of like ages eight to 12, and then some adults read it because they like it, right? And so um, those, those stories, uh, you, when you're writing, you know, 200, 300 pages of a story, 
you have to have like a logical follow through and then you have to have uh, a certain art to persuading your readers to enjoy themselves. Um, and, and so you're setting things up. And I, I think I started writing stories uh, before I was an entrepreneur. And I think when I realized that as I wrote those stories and as I started to publish my own work, uh, I realized that entrepreneurship was very much linked to this uh, because when you, are, when you have an idea for a company or when you have an idea for a technology or something you want to present, you need to tell that story. You need to tell it in a way that's compelling and interesting. And if um, that story is, is not compelling or interesting, then um, you're, you're going to fail. Um, and so I love, I, you know, uh, when, when I would write books, it was almost like I would tell the stories out loud to my family or friends or anybody who would listen if I could pin them down. And I would tell those stories and then I would wait to see when they would raise their eyebrows or go, oh, really? And so, in fact, I, I, have this, I have this video that I took of my wife as she was reading one of the climactic conclusions of one of my stories, and she goes, and um, so I thought, okay, that's a good story. That worked, right? Um, but sometimes it falls flat, right? And people go, kind of wander. They're looking at their watches. They're getting bored. And you think, okay, this story isn't working. I need to fix that, right? Same thing with um, entrepreneurship. I've heard it called the wow factor, right? Is if you can demonstrate your idea in a sentence or two, the elevator pitch to someone on the street for a kind of product or technology or idea for your company. And if they go, wow, oh, that's interesting. And then they move forward in their seat and you watch their body language, you can know if they're reacting to that idea or not. If you do that 100 times and nobody's reacting, I think it's time to move on to a new idea. Um, but if you find that somebody's intrigued and they want to know more, uh, then you might have something there and you can continue in your validation process of, of that business idea. Tell the story. See yeah. if they listen. And it's probably easier telling a story with a voice like yours. By the way, you have an amazing Thank you. voice. Thank you. Um, people probably listen a little bit longer with that soothing tone. Um, we're going to open it up for questions from the audience here in a, in a little bit, so um, get your questions ready here for Adam. The... Along those lines of stories, real quick, just a fun question. You obviously like the science fiction and, and fantasy. Love it. What is your favorite science fiction or fantasy story? Ooh, favorite one. Okay, I'm just going to name one because we were talking about this on the car ride over, is, is Dune. Um, some, anyone seen the movie? Dune? Anyone read the book? Okay, the author over here, Yes. It's fantastic. It's fantastic, right? Um, Dune is, uh, is an incredible part of world building. It's an incredible uh, system of fantasy magic in a way. Um, and it's intriguing as it pulls you along into this culture that's been built and where things are going to go. But the, uh, the intrigue that is written into the story uh, really speaks to... Human nature. There, the, the author, you know, he had he had a fantastic grasp on human nature, and was able to set up these scenarios that pull you along into the story. So I I love I love Dune. I love Isaac Asimov. Uh, love Tolkien. All the Lord of the Rings. Fantastic stuff. Uh, really great. Way back to you know I was reading Lloyd Alexander uh, in his uh, yeah we get an applause for that one. There we go. Yeah, great stuff. Right, the Book of Three, the High King, that whole series. Um, as a kid, that's what started me into fantasy. 
And, uh, you know, so th those classics I love. And then there's obviously, like, some really fun writing that's coming out now um, that, that I really enjoy. The Three-Body Problem, if you ever read that one, that was really fantastic and fascinating science fiction story. Very cool. Um, you mentioned this is what you're carrying in your fanny pack. That's the one I'm carrying in my fanny pack. And I think there's uh, the cards on the desks. But um, this is cool for me, somebody on the outside looking in. This was in somebody's brain, and then maybe on a whiteboard. And now wh wherever it is in the, the process is the ultimate question. But let's talk about this game, Swords. Okay. And then like the ideation and the implementation, and where are you guys now? And ultimately, what do you want the end result to be? Okay, so um, uh, so Swords, we're developing our own property and IP, you know, at Future House, and and as whereas a service business, we keep making things for other people, but now it's time for us to make our own, right? And there's a risk you got to take because whose money are we spending? We're spending our own money, right? Not somebody else's to make this. And uh, the the idea is um, that imagine Pokemon Go meets the Legend of Zelda uh, with a geocaching element. Okay, so um, Pokemon Go players, anybody? You can admit it, right? We all did, <laughs> at least for one week in 2016 that summer. You didn't, shaking your head. Stand strong. You're, <laughs> you're never too old to Pokemon Go. Okay, so um, in fact, I remember seeing 80-year-old men playing Pokemon Go in the park. No, of course not, of course not. In your late 30s, maybe. Um, so, so, you know, this, this, there's a layer of uh, spatial computing, they call it, um, that exists in augmented reality over our real world. You know, it's tying data to locations and interactions to locations around us. You know, and this is, this is uh, very much talked about in the world of augmented reality and XR and VR of what those layers are and how they interact. Well, I, I had this amazing experience um, uh, recently, as I was looking for a geocache, um, I opened up the geocache app. And if you've ever, if you've never geocached before, you basically get a location, you walk to it, and you know there's something there, but you don't know what it's going to be. And your face is in this app the whole time, and you're trying to navigate, and you're trying to get there, and you're seeing the comments that people have made who have gone there before. Maybe they've gone hint, given hints, or maybe they've said, "Hey, you know, I found this or this, or I, I didn't find this." And, and so you know there's a history of somebody who took the time to hide that thing, the p other people who have gone there, and there's a story behind it. And so your face is in the phone, and you're walking along this trail, and you're trying to navigate how to get to it. And this happened to me. I was up on, um, in Alpine on the hills, in the, the foothills, and passing through these trails, and I looked up, and I hadn't even realized what was happening or where I was, but I had to put the phone down because you have to look for that geocache, it, doesn't it tells you the, the exact GPS, but then you have to scramble around and find it. And that moment where you know, your, your consciousness and your mind when you play a video game or you watch TV or you're on social media is in screen space, right? And you're sucked into that screen space and your situational awareness has gone to zero. Um, but in that moment when I was finding something, it was this, this geocache and I had to put that phone down and then suddenly I realized I was in this grand vista overlooking the valley with these magnificent mountains before me and nature provides like the best dopamine hit and adrenaline rush you can find out there and it was incredible because I'd been put in this place and I'd been given this experience all by this little app that brought me to this place and so 
I love giving people experiences. I love telling stories. And if that's like an actual life experience, you know, one of my favorite things to do in college was gather my friends and go up into the hills to some crazy unknown destination and everybody has this crazy experience as you're trying to get there, right? And so um, if we can put that into a game and have people feel the power of going out and finding a new place and whether that's, you know, um, some strange alleyway in an urban territory that's hopefully quite safe um, or uh, finding, you know, the edge of a beautiful river uh, or, a, or a stunning vista overlooking a valley, um, there's, there's an incredible opportunity there. And the whole intention and the, con the conceit of this building this game, Swords, is that we are going to turn the world into an adventure game. You're going to collect swords, you're going to fight monsters, and you're going to go on quests um, in order to find the prize. And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to take a sword and we're going to bury it in the wilderness, a real live one, along with a treasure chest full of a thousand gold coins, just like a good pirate would hide, or a hobbit. Um, and we're going to say, okay, go, right? And so we're, we're launching this early beta. We've had an incredible amount of response uh, of people who are jumping on saying, oh, when is this going to launch? I really want to be there. Uh, we're just a couple weeks away. We think probably end of September or so we'll be ready to have the first test group go through and find this treasure, right? But what's incredible about that is, you know, people will message me and they say, my kids really need this. My kids need to get off their screens. My kids need to go outside. Like, this is something we need. Like, how soon can we do this? Can they get their friends doing this? And so um, it's, it's that. It's, it's providing an adventure experience for people. I heard a lot of really cool things there, but was it $1,000 of gold? Uh, to that, $1,000 of gold, and maybe some okay. silver, too. It'll be mixed in. In fact, check my LinkedIn. I just posted a video of it. Um, but, uh, but uh, it's, yeah, it's $1,000, and that's just the first hunt, right? And then we're going to have another one and another one, and they'll be in different locations. So, yeah, you know, don't follow me home. I promise <laughs> the treasure chest is hidden somewhere safe right now. Um, but, yeah, it's this idea of, like, hey, why not in this game have something tangible? Because, and I don't want to make this a virtual currency that you get there and you tell, oh, showing the movie right here, some early beta versions. Don't judge the art right now. That's the last thing that we do. But uh, the prototype is being built. And so, um, yes, I, I don't want to make a virtual currency that lives in there. There will be a virtual currency in the game, but I want people to find real things, right? It's like that geocaching moment. I had to put my phone down and look around and I, I had this experience. And so that's what we want to do is tie that layer of spatial computing and augmented reality to the real world and let's give people real experiences. Yeah. Um, and there's a real sword, I heard. And there's a real sword. There's a real sword. We'll probably have like a, more of a, of a dull edge. My legal counsel over here has advised me that uh, we should probably not put sharp swords out in the wilderness. <laughs> there could be some stories there. Could be. Um, all right. I've got a million more questions, but I know other people probably uh, have some questions in the audience. So uh, raise your hand and we'll um, bring a microphone to you. So okay. this is fascinating. Um, I don't know, how do you do it when all of the money appears to come at the back end? You said when you monetize that money exchange, exchanges hands up front. So do you get specifications and tell them this is what it's going to cost? 
and make that agreement up front? Or is it something that you do at the end when you deliver the product to them and they pay you for it? It's done before. So uh, just like building a house uh, with a contractor, you would work on with a contractor and say, okay, this is what you're going to build. This is what it's going to cost. You know, uh, there's some money paid up front, and then there's money paid milestones along the way. Because if you have a project that's a year long, I don't want to foot the bill for somebody else's product, right? So they need to pay a portion up front and then along the way so that, you know, I can keep my team working. Because, you know, we have about... 40 artists and engineers working for Future House right now in various capacities, and uh, they all, you know, need to be pay their rent in order to do their art and their engineering. Yep. yep. In, in, in our lifeblood is those people's talents, right? And like we've got an incredible crew, um, and if uh, yeah, having them paid is is very important. And it's one of those things where it's like hey, can you just do me this favor? And it's like, well, that, you're just asking me for a, a six-month favor of 20 people working on something. There's, you know, there's not that kind of favor that can be done, right? And so um, we make sure that we take care of our crew because they're, they're everything. I'm a film and television director, and I'm curious oh, how you think that uh, technology like AR, VR, immersive experiences are going to change the entertainment industry over the next 10, 15 years. Okay, um, I'm glad you asked that question because uh, AR and VR have now been around for a solid, you know, if it's AR, it's been around, or VR, it's been around for, you know, 15, 20 years, right, in various forms. The technology is uh, maturing a lot and able to do so much more. Uh, AR is relatively new. Um, augmented reality, you know, Pokemon Go, you look through your phone and you see something that's not there superimposed on the real world, right? So uh, that really is really got going like six years ago, right? Um, and six or seven years ago is when that technology started to uh, be available on like the, um, the AR kit and the AR core where Apple and Google were supporting those on phones. Um, it, there's been so much push to have that change film and have that change television. And so far, it hasn't. Um, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. So far, the, most of the attempts have become very um, gimmicky, right? Like it's a very cool thing that you can use for a few moments. So for example, like Pokemon Go, most people turn off the augmented reality when they play the game, right? And so um, that is often because you gotta hold your phone in this weird way, and you gotta do this. So, it's not changing things right now, but as soon as those phones become a form factor that you put on your face, maybe Apple Vision Pro, right? Um, and it's easy to use, and it's just a pair of glasses that's as sleek and easy as this, that's when it's gonna change film and TV. Uh, because there are already uh, some technologies like X-Real glasses that exist out there where you can put them on and then you can see your computer screens extended from your laptop and you can throw up a bunch of things and you can watch a movie on a plane and nobody can tell that you're watching a movie but you have this whole screen that looks like it's you know, vast and large in front of you. Those technologies already exist and in that way they're changing consumption. And there hasn't been rapid adoption yet. And I think there hasn't been rapid adoption because there's still just too many little hangups. It's like too hard to use, it's not convenient. Um, when it gets to the point where it's like your phone, where it's like, oh, it's easy to pull out and look at for a few seconds and then put back, 
that's when it will change things. Um, I think that uh, virtual reality is, is fantastic. I own seven headsets at home uh, of, of various varieties because we, we develop on all these and I can only wear one at a time. Uh, but I still have seven. And so um, I, I actually have more headsets than I do family members. Uh, so you're all invited over to use them because they need to be used. So, uh, but those headsets, when I come home and I want to play a game, I am instantly more attracted to sitting on the couch with my kids and playing Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom than I am putting on that headset. Um, and I do love Robo Recall, right? It's a, it's a fantastic VR game, and my kids love playing that. But the headset will go for weeks without being played, whereas it's just so easy to sit in front of your TV. So there's some things that need to be easier there before they make a huge, massive shift in the way the technology works. Um, you know, you, you can see some of, some of these incredible uh, dome experiences, like the MSG Sphere in Las Vegas, or, um, uh, you know, Cosm in Salt Lake is, uh, is building some incredible uh, dome technology. Um, there, when you look at, like, an IMAX theater, um, it's so convenient to sit there, and it creates almost a virtual reality experience uh, in some ways. Uh, it's not entirely interactive, but if you can make those screens interactive, I think that's going to change film. In the gaming and visuals development industry, that, like you mentioned earlier, scope creep can be a big, uh, a big issue. Um, how do you help manage expectations and manage those relationships to make sure that scope creep and timing creep doesn't become a, a problem in your engagements? Are you a game developer? No. Okay. Project manager. A little bit, okay. That was an astute question. Um, so uh, it, it all comes down to putting it down on paper. You know, drafting a scope of work that um, both parties agree upon and understand. Uh, there is some malleability there. Um, and in the end, you want to work with people you, that you trust and that, you, that understand uh, both sides of the equation. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of projects where we do some give and take. Uh, but it is important to like outline that beforehand. Um, projects pivot, projects change, and so you've got to have almost like a constant negotiation of uh, if things are changing, um, so that you ha that you manage those expectations such that there's no surprises along the way. So if there's any way you can quantify what those things are, you've got to do it. So typically, when you think of companies like yours, you would think you know, he's probably located in California. That's where all the movie studios are and big big game companies are there. Why, why here in Utah or Pleasant Grove, where you're located? Because um, it was down the street from my house, mostly. Uh, but actually, you bring up a really good point. So I couldn't have started this company had I not worked in Los Angeles for nearly 20 years. Uh, because that's what gave me the contacts, the network, the know-how, the industry understanding uh, to be able to build that company. And then it was a COVID baby, right? It came, it was built in May of 2020. Location did not matter. I mean, we didn't even have an office for the first little bit. And then when we, as soon as we did, it was just one room to house a bunch of computers on a rack. And then two people would come together and we didn't even know if it was legal, right? So um, because we were a remote studio uh, built out of COVID, that's, that open the door for that, right? I was used to doing remote work before, but it became much more accepted in the world. And so now 
Uh, with TV, it's a little bit harder, and there there's some great you know film studios um, in the Utah area. But with TV, it's a little bit harder if you want to draw from that network of uh, of Los Angeles, where a lot of the money is changing hands or things are being developed. Um, there's some new things happening though that it's exciting uh, as as different stories are being able to be told uh, and break the mold of here's this Hollywood mold of storytelling and type of culture and ideology that's represented, but now stories are coming from different places. With games, it's a little bit more open. Like there's countries across the world that have, you know, there's amazing developers in the Ukraine and Serbia and uh, 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 Malaysia, right? And so we actually work with a lot of those studios as well. Um, and we do some outsourcing to some of those teams overseas. Um, but curious enough, Utah actually has quite an ecosystem in the gaming industry. So I don't know if you knew this, but um, you guys heard of uh, Harry Potter, right? Okay, saw some hands. Okay, Hogwarts Legacy, uh, which is um, a Harry Potter game that just came out, was actually built almost entirely, if I'm not mistaken, up in Salt Lake City. Um, so Warner Brothers has a studio called Warner Brothers Avalanche. It's been built over the years. It's been around a long time before. Prior to being Warner Brothers, it was actually the studio that created Disney Infinity. Um, and then they were, uh, you know, changed hands uh, and uh, reformed and uh, was working on Hogwarts Legacy. And it was built there. And that game shattered all records when it came out uh, last year. I mean, that game has done well over a billion dollars in sales. A billion dollars in sales. Like, that's pretty incredible. I mean, the video game industry itself is something like $383 billion this year, projected to be by the end of the year. So it's huge. So um, there's, there's that. You have places like The Void cropping up, uh, which is a great VR um, technology, um, which then uh, had a relationship with Disney um, and was, you could see and try it out in downtown Disney or in New York. Um, you have Wildworks, which creates Animal Jam, which is one of the most massive multiplayer online kids games in existence. Um, and then Epic Games has a branch here. Um, uh, Epic was, there was a, a small studio called Chair that was built by a couple of um, uh, BYU grads that were in the animation program a couple years before me. And they built this studio up, sold it to Epic, and started to drive a lot of the creative for Fortnite. Um, so a lot of Fortnite's origins are here in Utah. So when you have Epic, Warner Brothers, Wildworks, Void, Future House and various other companies. I mean, there is actually quite a games ecosystem here under our nose that is um, flourishing and growing. And uh, I think we ought to bring that into Silicon Slopes more because it's quite, an, uh, quite a um, strong industry and it'd be interesting to hear more about it. Absolutely. Well, you're here now. I'm here now. There, there it is. And there you have it, folks. We've got time for one or two more. I know there's some more hands up. Uh, my question is, um, how can Utah companies help with the adoption of AR and VR? Uh, making great product. Um, I think that AR and VR as a hardware play, you know, you, you have a couple of choices. You can go out and make product for existing hardware. You can go try to make new hardware. The hardware game is a very hard game and requires a huge infusion of capital. Uh, you know, we've, we, 
there was over a billion dollars invested in the Magic Leap. If you know the Magic Leap, it was this most incredible uh, AR headset that was ever dreamed of. And Google itself invested, you know, probably something like 800 million. I'm just going off the cuff here, but the incredible amount of money and what the promise of this technology was. But that technology struggled to be what it had promised it would be. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and hardware is a hard game because uh, you, you have to develop the operating system, the content for it at the same time. That's a hard game. Making great content um, is, uh, is really uh, one of the ways that you can quickly get yourself on the map unless there's a huge infusion of capital. Uh, the Void came out of Utah. Uh, Ken Bretschneider was you know, really amazing that he was able to pull together that kind of experience, which was a hardware and a location play and a software play. Um, all those things came together and it was fantastic, but that economic, like as a financial model struggled and ultimately uh, collapsed and hopefully it will be revived as I know they're, they're rebooting it. Um, but uh, I, think, I think the best thing to do is uh, great, great content. Adam, so in full transparency, if you're being honest, does any of the development of AI and its ability to, like, you know, you see all these people talking about what AI can build on the animation side and on the development side. Is there part of you that gets scared about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I get scared about it when I use it, and it's so easy, right? And you're just like, wow, that was so cool. I just typed in a few words and I got this amazing picture, right? Except he has six fingers on one hand or seven. Um, and so that part is really exciting, right? Because I can go uh, art direct something by saying, hey, we kind of want it to look like this. And then I type in some prompts and I go through a couple iterations and I come up with some images that are um, the direction that I want to go. And then I can show the artist and say, hey, this is what I was thinking. This is what's in my brain, right? And to do that kind of art might take several weeks, several months, you know, a lot of people to work on that. And so it is, it is super easy, right? But what's happening with these large language models and the same with pictures um, and everything else is that our data sets keep being built. And look, this, this algorithm that AI is doing is exactly the same thing that humans have been doing for centuries, but it's just sped up in an incredible way. It's like lightning speed, right? Like, you know, uh, Monet and the Impressionists, they looked at art, they examined it, and then they tweaked it slightly. And then somebody looked at their art, tweaked it slightly, and you got something new each time, right? They're all copying each other's art. Now a machine is copying other people's art, right? And so it's doing it so fast, and um, that, that, that is scary because what scares me about that is that um, artists would give up their own creativity and just let the machines do it and that humanity does that for the rest of our existence. And that, that is um, a dismal end. Uh, if, we, if we don't continue to be creative on our own, then all that's created will be machine derivatives of what's already been created before. Um, and I think that we have a responsibility not to abdicate our own creativity and our own curiosity and our own brilliance. Um,
as a tool, I'm not afraid of new technology that's going to help humans speed things up, right? I've spent my entire career writing tools that would replace me so that somebody else could come use those tools and we could do it faster and better, right? Um, but we have to maintain that creative aspect. And I think we will because I think there's something unique about the human spark. Well said. And um, on the creativity side, for creative folks like you, um, sometimes the stereotype is chasing squirrels a little bit because it's always creating and, uh, and a lot of half-finished projects, theoretically. I've got a few of those in my backyard. I'm not overly creative, but I'm like, this is a good thing. I'll create. doesn't work. Um, how do you manage that type of group of people that are creative and artistic and uh, might not care about the spreadsheet at the end of the day? Uh, you know, there, there's a certain amount of professionalism that comes uh, with artists and engineers who have been in the industry before. They know that, you know, we've got to make a product and we've got to finish it just like anything else. And it's better to be finished rather than perfect. Uh, it's better to have something to deliver. Um, and so a lot of that is the discipline that's set up by our production staff um, and production staff at any type of creative industry. They say, hey, you've got X number of days and we're going to come check in with you on how things are going by this day and halfway through and it's going to be due at this time. And it's actually amazing how much that uh, fosters creativity because creativity thrives in when it's under constraints. It thrives when you have a limited amount of time, resources, money, um, talent to accomplish that task. And something brilliant can come out of that um, because, you know, you, you are constrained. It, you know, let's, Star Wars, for example. There was minimal budget on A New Hope um, and they just had to get scrappy to get that thing done, right? And I think it was brilliant, uh, some of the shortcuts and some of the ideas that came in some of the editing to tell that story. And it's one of my favorite movies and it still stands the test of time. As soon as George Lucas got unlimited funds for the prequels, it was almost crippling for him. He could do anything. He had all the time in the world. He, he, um, nobody would say no to George. Um, and I think that the prequels suffered because of that creatively. Um, so uh, constraints actually help us to make something better. Yeah. How do you know so much about George Lucas? <laughs> so uh, I worked for George. Um, it, and uh, you know, Industrial Light and Magic on a number of very uh, a number of projects, and um, it's an incredible company. If you if you want to, if you want to feel like you're having a storytelling experience, you walk through those halls, and just being there, you know, it's covered. You walk in inside, and there's Darth Vader in the lobby next to Boba Fett, and then you see R two D two, and these are actual film props from the movies, and it's just the whole halls are riddled with that. Um, and, you know, you go over to HR and there's Han Solo frozen in carbonite. I'm not sure what, they're, what message they're trying to send with that, but it was effective. So, uh, you know, but there's a story that's being told of, like, this is the place that built Star Wars, and this is a storied pass over the decades of brilliant minds that have come together to do the impossible um, and to tell a story with it. And so... Every Christmas, there's some kind of Star Wars gift that you're given, and it's so cool, and people eat it up, and people work there just for that because they're Star Wars geeks, and they want to be part of that legendary history 
of George Lucas and Star Wars. And that's, that's some great storytelling. That is. And they've got uh, a lot of proof in uh, the pudding on that one, to say the least. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join us, Adam. Great questions from the audience. Um, really good stuff. Uh, congrats to you and your team. And um, there will be another story to tell soon. There will be many more, yes. And it sounds like we need to have you on again in about a year, year and a half. Let's do it. Okay. Let's do it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.